Will media unicorns go extinct? And are platform businesses eating the world? This is episode 37, the overblown episode of Media Unplugged. (laughs) The podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, will media unicorns go extinct? I know that's on everyone's mind, so we should talk about it. And that's what we're going to do. This is from a thing called Monday Note by uh, Frederic uh, Filou and Jean-Louis Gasset. I don't know who Frederic is, but I know Jean-Louis is uh, uh, formerly of Apple, right? Yeah, yeah. No, smart guys. Uh, you, you know, subscribe to Monday Note. They have a lot of... Uh, Interesting perspectives, especially on anything digital. Media unicorns, unbearable billion-dollar valuations is the name of the piece. Here's just a little excerpt. To many modern media companies, regardless of their core products, spreading editorial contents through ecosystems controlled by Facebook, Apple, or Google is not just a good idea. It's a matter of survival. Even the most reluctant join the fray. The trending strategic certainty says that playing offense requires aggressive distribution on social platforms. Quote, the web is dead. The, the, web. the web is dead. Audiences are flat, <laughs> says a prominent New York VC. According to him, the potential for growth of digital direct distribution on the web or through apps has reached a plateau. And the future lies in content massively spread on other platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Pinterest, etc., Some media deals have two dozen such outlets counting, quote, content views, the metric du jour, in billions. They radiate impressive figures, double-digit monthly growth, and unbelievable reach. But please, please, please do not question the value of these eyeballs, nor the prospect of monetization, not in polite company, Tom. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't didn't break it out. I didn't break out the media uh, companies, but right now there are... A little more, I think, than 150 unicorns, which are these private technology companies valued at a billion dollars or more. Mm-hmm. And many, if not most of them, will in fact go extinct, <laughs> extinct because they may look shiny on the outside. I mean, when you look at things like revenue and user growth, but then you look at the core and they're seriously lacking a defensible competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what people miss when they look at the web, right? They miss the fact that the web giveth and the web taketh away. Yeah, techno- <laughs> seriously, technology, particular so- you know, software, is transforming businesses. Mm-hmm. But it increases transparency. And when mm-hmm. you do that, here comes competition because the barriers to entry are so extremely low. I mean, I was thinking about it and I said, you know, it's like a, it's like a commercial fishing boat. So you discover this unknown spot, right, that's teeming with fish. And you head out with your boats and your crew and you start hauling them in. Mm -hmm. The next thing you know, you look around and you're surrounded by dozens of other fishing boats. Pandora, 15 years ago, Pandora launched its boats. Mm -hmm. Six years later, hello, Spotify. Now, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Amazon Prime Music, Tidal, YouTube Red, iHeartRadio, I don't know how many other ones there are. So this is, this is what's wrong here with this, these crazy valuations. What is the barrier to entry from competitive offerings? 
Well, it's interesting that the, you know, the metaphor of the unicorn is an interesting choice to begin with, right? Because you're dealing with... <laughs> Something that doesn't really a, exist. A, a <laughs> mythical beast that doesn't, in fact, exist. That's correct. Right. Um, I, I guess the, the, the way it strikes me is that when you're dealing with, and uh, I don't remember the number that you said, the number of unicorns. But those aren't me- But those aren't media unicorns. If you carve it down to media u- unicorns, you have a handful. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the first point to be made, and we're going to pick up on this in our second topic, is that we're talking about uh, a, a phenomena which is rarefied, which doesn't relate to most of the problems most of us have. Because even when you pick on a Pandora and you mention all the competitors of that Pandora, you know, you can go to that list can get a lot longer, right? Right. But each of those competitors, the farther down the list you go, gets a lot less important and themselves a lot more likely to explode or implode. Exactly. So I think it's interesting that it's kind of a a problem faced by a sparse few to begin with. Here are the points that this article makes about the things that are wrong with this picture. Uh, I mean, by the way, the picture, the example for BuzzFeed, which is a media unicorn, is that for each, you know, a vast quantity of their uh, interaction happens on, uh, on social media. Right. For each click sent back to BuzzFeed, 44 views on average are made on social. So who is benefiting the most from these media unicorns? <laughs> the unicorn themselves or the distribution partner for the unicorn that's getting 44 times the interaction of the unicorn? Um, that was the first point, that of the three things wrong with this picture, according to this article, the first one is that you're depending on all these third-party publishers over whom you have no control. Mm-hmm. The second one is that most players who currently enjoy social leverage live in the hope that Facebook will come up with some direct monetization model, which I loved. I know. So in other words, I got to do this for survival, right? I have no choice. I need to survive. I need to go to where the audience is. I need to be there. That used to be get a cable channel. That used to be publish a magazine, right? That used to be get on television. Now it's get traction on Facebook. Um, that model that Facebook will one day develop is going to benefit who the most? <laughs> well, of course. I mean, but this, look, at this is the problem. So uh, according to a publisher, this is what the author mm-hmm. wrote, they, he said saying that distributed content is threatening the brand is like saying that going digital killed print. Mm-hmm. Now, if the publisher is saying that digital didn't kill print and so distributed content won't threaten someone's brand, he's crazy, right. especially if the brand is a media brand, right? So most of these brands are curating and distributing other people's content, like most TV networks, magazines, newspapers. Right. If it's not unique and compelling and you can get it all over the place, why do I come to you to get it? I don't. Well, and, but it again, it raises the question of what you is. And the premise of the statement is that you are the manifestation of all your content distributed across social media when the BuzzFeed statistics suggest that you are one click back for every 44 views made on social. Those are two completely different yous, right? No, exactly. If, if, if you, the publisher... Are the desti- are are the click back right to a branded experience? That's one you. 
if you are the thing I click on uh, Facebook stories uh, in the Facebook uh, ecosystem, that's a you disembodied from the real you, and that's a you that looks an awful lot like all the rest of yous. Yeah, look, this comes down to advertising dollars. This is what this is all about. And if right. you're a media brand and you have something truly unique and desirable that people can't get somewhere else, then you don't make it available somewhere else, hmm. right? If you want to establish and nurture a relationship with your audience and create these premium advertising dollars, then you have to keep that content. Now, look, that that that's a tough thing to do. We, we I was... Uh, one of the listeners, Brian, tweeted a link uh, about Yahoo's failed media initiative. So they've recently yeah. closed 15 online magazines. Yes, I saw that. You saw that, right? Food, autos, real yep. estate, travel. And they're going to publish now from other websites. Now, here's, here's is what the article states. It states that the CEO, Marissa Mayer, bet heavily on the magazines as a key to reinventing Yahoo as a premium Destination for readers and advertisers. Mm -hmm. Destination. Destination. Premium. premium and destination are the two keywords. That's there, it. Right? What's premium mean? It means special. special. What's destination mean? It means special. the only place to find it. That's yeah. right. So this is Here's what's the, confusing, isn't it? I mean, you can't have that and have your content spread all over the place. Well, there, here's the one exception, and this too is extraordinarily hard. Great content that want that. People want another place. You see, the question is, who has the leverage, right? Exactly. If you're the publisher, if you're HBO and you have Game of Thrones, people are coming to you all day saying, I really want Game of Thrones. Can I buy it from you exactly. for my platform? Whereas people like uh, you know, BuzzFeed is saying, can I please give this to you because I want one out of every 44 clicks on the content. Yep. I mean, the leverage is in a completely different place until the content becomes so special that it carries a monetary value on these distribution partners. Um, <laughs> no, the more, listen, the more people enter this game, this marketplace, the cheaper the advertising That's dollars right. are going to get. That is called economics. That's right. You are listening to Media <laughs> Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Are platform businesses eating the world? Now, this is actually kind of related to the previous content or, uh, uh, a piece we talked about. This one's from Forbes. Uh, that's the name of the piece. Apparently, there's a new book called Platform Revolution. And from what I can tell, this is not an easy read, Tom. Yeah, I think it was written by economists. That's why. <laughs> that sounds about right. So I'm going to just touch on the theme here, and then we'll, we'll explain it. The platform, the digitized, open, and participative business models, creating commercially connected ecosystems of producers and consumers, the networks and markets forming around and orchestrated by Google, Airbnb, Uber, which, by the way, Tom, are not only the favorite examples, in many cases, they only, are the only Yeah, examples. I know, I know. <laughs> and, other, and, and other virtual exchange enterprises that are apparently uh, too uh, unknown to name are the maws into which traditional companies are now disappearing. That's the theme of, of, of this piece, that platforms are taking over the world. Are platforms taking over the world? Okay, so let's look at his description of platform. Digitized, mm -hmm. open, and participative business models creating commercially connected ecosystems. See, see, that's a valuable description, but it's obscure. Listen, yes. this, is, this is what you ask yourself. It's very simple. 
How do we, as a brand, use our assets, our expertise, trust, connections? How do we take these things that we have and create a broad and deeply connected value exchange between people? And how do we do it by blending physical and digital experiences? See, the question is, is you've, before you never had this ability to connect all these people and have them interacting and talking, you, you couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Now you have the ability to do it. So now the question is, how do we do it? How do we recreate deep, real-world, personally relevant connections between human beings in a marketplace? Because the more you can do that, the deeper you can go the stronger the brand becomes, the more powerful the barrier to competition. Listen, a friend of mm-hmm. mine, I recently sat in just to listen to hear what, 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 what was going on. A friend of mine is this uh, Airbnb super host, you know, mm-hmm. has like a hundred and some odd five-star reviews. And she <laughs> met with, with an Airbnb representative. And, and I said, well, this is interesting. And so the, the rep essentially met with her, because I listened, to pick her brain. He's mm. asking her, how does she do it? You know, what does she do to become so successful? How can he help her make her life easier with Airbnb? Mm. How can I make it more productive? How can I connect you with people more valuable? Why is he doing all that? So he can take those desires from her, bring them back to Airbnb's marketing and R&D people and develop solutions that will create an even stronger switching cost in her head. Mm-hmm in a barrier to competitive entry because that's what these, these platforms, or, or I like ecosystems better, but it's because it's digital he's using it. What right. they're trying to do is they're trying to create this psychological switching cost so that when, it, when someone's mind says, hey, maybe I should switch to such and such, or maybe I should leave this platform <laughs> and go it alone, right? <laughs> all of a sudden, all the things they'd lose the connections, goodwill, tools, all of these accumulated benefits and the things that they have to deal with. Oh, I'll have to do this, this extra work, this potential risk, this downside. All this stuff just rushes into their heads and then they say, I'm not leaving. And and that bundle of value is, (laughs) listen, this is what I call it. It's like a bundle of value, all those little connections and conveniences and deals that you're going to lose. That is the value of the brand. Well, you're going to be surprised to hear me say this, but Uh-oh. I think you're being a little too <laughs> cynical. And I, oh, I get what I get. I think I'm usually the cynical one um, because I get what you're saying with switching costs. But look, switching costs are the um, outcome of the value which creates the relationship, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, switching costs aren't in and of themselves the destination, although that's desirable. I would argue switching costs are what happened when the cost of switching is so high because the value is, in fact, so great. Yeah, yeah. And but to most me, of that interview was about value. I'm telling you, it's, it's okay, why don't, you, why don't people leave Facebook? They don't want to leave their friends. You know, mm-hmm. So they have, they have the most powerful switching costs, which mm-hmm. is leaving your friends if you leave Facebook. You know, why, why don't these kids get rid of Snapchat? Well, I got to leave all these pictures that all my friends keep, crazy pictures that they send me. I'm not, I'm not going to be in on the joke. So those are the most powerful platforms of the, are the ones that have this network effect where you connect these people together. And if you leave, you have to leave these people. 
Well, that hence the familiar, the now familiar term FOMO, fear of missing out. Right. right. Well, what you're describing is interesting because you're painting a picture of, see, when you think of platform businesses and you use examples like Google, Airbnb, and Uber, you're thinking at a very, very, very large scale. And what you described, the way you described a platform business or an ecosystem right. could exist. It's like I was thinking, well, there, there are so few of these. These are few and far between. What about, you know, the dry cleaner down the street? This what about what my wife's yoga studio? This is what, what about I'm my business you. This and is your what I'm business? telling you, Mark. They're, nobody's seeing this. They're not seeing it. That if you want people to not leave you for a better mm. deal, start connecting people through an ecosystem, a marketplace mm -hmm. of all kinds of different connections between businesses, between people, be that be that person that facilitates and empowers using technology, using your connections, using your brand. Absolutely. And then no one and mm -hmm. then people don't leave. Mm. It's it's a That's big deal. It's a it's a it's it's powerful, but no one sees it. Like you're right. What they see is, oh, okay, I, I get how Uber's doing this. They're connecting people who want to drive people around with people who need a ride. And right. oh no, it's way more, it's much bigger than that. Well, and I, I don't have this uh, off the top of my head, but I've seen before that Uber's now getting into delivery, right? Um, Uber's getting, I've seen Uber getting into events. So Uber's, Uber's asking the question, because we have this network, what else can we do that will fulfill the desires of our audience That's within it. this network? That's it. You see, even, I, I even listened as my friend said to the, super, uh, said to the Airbnb rep, she, she said, listen, I, I have a property. I'm thinking I would like to do uh, longer-term corporate-type rentals. Mm -hmm. That's a, like a different market, right? And, and she said, I don't really see anything on your site that, that, that highlights this. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? Now, I do. If I he's do. smart, so, he goes back and he says, oh, my goodness, we can take that whole corporate rental business away too. So, but let's make it practical then. What you've just described in, in this anecdote is a power user being essentially interviewed mm -hmm. by the company that is deriving a lot of value out of this user and vice versa mm -hmm. to make their uh, product and service better for that user in the, in, as in what new problems can you solve of mine? What new desires can you fulfill of mine? And isn't that something that anybody with any storefront, any business, any size, large or small, can do? Everybody can do that. Think about it. If you have the relationships, take a radio, a radio business. Mm -hmm. You have the relationships with all these businesses. Why are you not doing this? Well, indeed, that kind of conversation has been had in media circles locally because I think local media companies increasingly are recognizing that whether they're print, radio, television, whatever, that their competitive advantage in a digital world is that they actually reside in a place with an address and four walls and that they have direct relationships with clients in and around that place and that they can actually solve problems for those clients, fulfill desires for those clients better than people from afar if their names are Apple or Facebook or Twitter. Yep, see, that's so, it. That, you're that's it right there in a nutshell. It's having that knowledge, the marketplace knowledge, 
is what gives you the advantage. And with these platforms, with digital technology, not only do you have knowledge, but you have data. And that's very empowering, right? When you can intelligently and predict things like balancing supply and demand and people's needs for each other, and you're the person that manages all that data, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And I guess you could argue that if you're talking about a much smaller business, even a local business, then the, then the, the, what data is to Amazon, relationships are to you. That's right. Be- because you can have these conversations with people one-on-one. You can do what that uh, Airbnb uh, rep did. And, uh, you know, I, I think truly uh, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for more people to do that kind, get that kind of feedback more often, right? I think it's the future of brands. I think old, the old traditional model of brands is I make this thing and all of these people come to me. And I have to I have to advertise it and market it. Right. I think the new one is I make this thing, and now I go out there and figure out how to connect everyone, in and around what it is I'm doing and what it mm-hmm. means to the people mm-hmm. out there. Like I talked about Red Bull before, right? It's not I make this can. How do I get somebody to come get this can of energy drink? Now mm-hmm. they're a big media company. They do events all kinds of things because they're saying, how do I go out there and connect all these people through my brand Mm -hmm. using information, technology, platforms, whatever it is. That's great, Tom. It's time for Rants and Raves. Mr. Tom, what do you have this week? Okay, yeah, I've been been thinking about this, and and so I decided that I'm not going to do a rant or a rave. Oh no. I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a plea. <laughs> okay. So this is a plea. So we know Kanye West has always been a little bit out there, right? He compares himself to Andy Warhol, <laughs> William Shakespeare, saying he's the greatest living artist and greatest artist of all time. Okay, whatever. Kanye, if you're listening, remember that's Tom talking. It is me. But look, I think the voices in his head are starting to take over, okay? So he's randomly (laughs) proclaiming now that Bill Cosby is innocent, that he's $53 million in debt, and that Mark Zuckerberg should invest a billion dollars into the Kanye West ideas to alleviate his financial woes. He's saying that white publications should not comment on black music. And in his new song, Famous... He sings, I feel like me and Taylor, meaning Taylor Swift, might still have sex. Why? I made that bitch famous. Okay. Now, to me, the most tellingly <laughs> of all of this is his recent Saturday Night Live appearance where he went on a tirade backstage claiming that he's 50% more influential than any human being. <laughs> By 50%, <laughs> dead or alive... By 50% for the next thousand years, he says he offers up Stanley Kubrick, Pablo Picasso, and the Apostle Paul as examples of people whose influence he has exceeded by approximately 50% for the next thousand years. So, so Mark, with high-profile brands, there's crazy-ass self-promotion like Trump, and then there's crazy-ass self-destruction. I think Kanye falls into the latter camp, and I think someone needs to get the brother some help. So that's all right. So that's, that's your plea. plea. I love it. 
I have a couple of uh, rants, or raves rather. Oh, this good. Week. Rants okay. are too You're typical. I know. On people. I know. I'm usually ranting on <laughs> things, but I have two raves. The first is very geeky, and the second is not. Um, it, there's a. Uh, this is about a podcast that I discovered not long ago. I am an X Files fan, and I'm thoroughly enjoying the uh, new run of the X Files. Tom, I don't know if uh, you have been so blessed. I watched the first one, but it, it was just, I don't know. It was just you like an the worst older one. Mulder and Scully to me. Of you, Mulder and you, Scully, I don't know. <laughs> you watched the worst one. Oh, so, okay. Um, <laughs> That's me. There's a podcast out there called The X-Files Files, and this is um, uh, produced by a guy named Kamal Nanjani. Uh, Kamal is uh, familiar uh, to you if you watch Silicon Valley. He's one of the actors on that. And what he does in the every podcast episode is he breaks down, and I mean really breaks down, one episode, one podcast at a time. So there's as many episodes as there will be podcasts and vice versa. So I went looking, and this is what any you know self-respecting X-Files fan who isn't intimately familiar with every last episode, because you haven't seen them in a while, I went to find out what the conversation was about my favorite episodes. And I've got to tell you, first of all, Kamal is a comic. He is funny. Hmm. Uh, the conversation is usually as an expert in there with him, an expert or a, some notable, somebody who knows something about something is in there with him. <laughs> and I listened to two, both written by my favorite X-Files scribe. Uh, and it's said, by the way, that you can tell a lot about a person uh, by finding out which X-Files episodes are their favorite. And my two favorite episodes are, from from season three, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, which is many people's favorite episode, and my number one favorite, Jose Chung's From Outer Space, the most famous weird episode of all time, written by both Darren Morgan, who is the brother of uh, one of the, uh, I think, the director, producer, writer, and um, just listening to the conversation between Kamal and Darren was just awesome. So, geek out. If you're an X-Files fan, to Kamal Nanjani's The X-Files Files, and you will be rewarded. So there you go. See, it's a rave. All right, good. All right. Here's my other one. And I know that the Super Bowl is very much in the rearview mirror. This is not so much about the Super Bowl, but about one facet of the Super Bowl you may have heard about, Tom. And that was headlined as follows in, uh, on CNN. Red Lobster, sales spike 33% after uh, Beyonce geez. endorsement. Yep. Have you heard of this? Oh, yeah. So Beyonce puts out her first song since 2014, and it debuts, of course, in the halftime show of uh, the Super Bowl. Um, Red Lobster probably wasn't expecting a sales bump to result, but they got one anyway. The chain said sales were up 33% on Sunday over the previous year, thanks to one lyric in the new track that suggests using Red Lobster's food as a reward for sex. <laughs> Red Lobster spokesperson Erica Atori said the brand was mentioned on Twitter 42,000 times in a single hour and trended for the first time in Red Lobster history. Now, here's what I think is so great about this, Tom. I, I just, first of all, here's an article that follows a Super Bowl uh, event that says, look at the big spike in sales that happened as a result of this Super Bowl event. Do you notice that you never, ever, ever see that article for any of the commercials on the Super Bowl? I know, that's pretty funny. You never, ever, ever saw that article because we've talked about it for that Oreo dip in the dark, dunk in the dark thing? I remember, yep. You, you never saw this article. So what is it that makes this 
so different from that? And I think there are a couple things, three things. One, we're talking about a, a lyric that was in a Beyonce song. So here we have an authentic expression of something from number two, a trusted source in number three, a cultural, a culturally relevant context, <laughs> namely a song. Okay. Are you going to tell them the lyric? So, no, I don't know the lyric. <laughs> no? I don't. It's not in the article. I don't know the okay, lyric. I'll give it to you. Do you know what the lyric is? Yeah, yeah. It's, when he F me good, I take his ass to Red Lobster because I slay. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, authentic expression, trusted source, culturally relevant context. And in case it's not clear to you, none of what I've just described is an ad. So I think it's really telling that by far the most successful, from what we can tell, element from that show as it relates to any consumer <laughs> product was that lyric from that song, which is not an ad, Tom. Oh, gracious. Well, that's a good, that's a good rant, and it's um, very instructive. Maybe somebody will take that and go to Kanye and see if he'll shout something out. <laughs> I'm sure the answer will be yes. <laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at a number of places, SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, and the American Marketing Association. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom A. Sacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. And if you have a comment about the show, tweet us like that uh, listener did this past week. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Mr. Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. Music.